Lord, we come to you this morning and we say, you, you are the light. You are the light of the world. You shed light in the darkest of dark places, no matter where we are, no matter where we are, Lord. Um, no matter what's around us physically, Lord, or spiritually or emotionally, no matter what darkness we are in or will ever be in or have ever been in, there is no darkness that is too dark for your light because you have overcome the darkness. And we just say thank you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that you are the transformer. There's no transformer, Lord, that is greater than you. And your transformation power, Lord, is unstoppable. There's nothing that can contain your transformation, your transforming power. Nothing, nothing will ever stop that. And so we just thank you, Lord. We thank you this morning for the incredibly awesome gift that you have given us in your son. Mm-hmm. And we thank you that your presence is here with us, mm-hmm. Lord, and that, you're, and that you desire to be at work transforming us and revealing mm-hmm. your light in every place, Lord, that um, wherever we are. And you're... And I thank you that each one of us takes your light wherever we go. May we be faithful stewards of that light, Lord. And I lift up Conrad to you this morning as he has a word, to your word, Lord, to deliver to us. I pray, Lord, for your peace to be upon him, a peace that passes all understanding. Protection, Lord, beyond what he would be able to muster up for himself. Strength, Lord, in his voice and courage beyond courage, Lord. We just pray for the courage that that you called Joshua to. Be strong and courageous. I pray that for Conrad this morning, Lord, that he would be strong and courageous. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that, that, um, that we're not walking in that 400 years of darkness, Lord, but we're, we're in this, this period of great light. And that we have the opportunity to hear from you. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name, and I just want to say, because Kate's telling me to, that the kids are dismissed for Children's Church. So, Kate, thank you for that heads up this morning. Children, you may be dismissed for Children's Church, and that takes about a third of our congregation. I want to especially welcome a friend of mine, Doug Miller, sitting down front with me. Doug, thanks for being here. It was a grace of God to see you this morning. I also want to welcome folks from the Nazareth Project. We'll hear from uh, a few of them later, and just welcome. Good to have you here. This is a continuation of the series, Turning the World Upside Down, the Messiah through the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. This is not an Advent series. It's the first time out of nine years that I have not specifically preached an Advent series, and yet when you're preaching about the Messiah, you can't help but be preaching about the good news that is coming that we anticipate through Advent 
and at Christmas. This sermon today connects with a sermon back on November 3. So if you have your booklet at all, you may remember that, that sermon where Paul was in Ephesus and he was facing the demonic forces of, uh, of Ephesus. And I talked about the, the way that the enemy uh, infiltrates our personal lives, but the way that the enemy also infiltrates the structures, the social structures of our society, the economic structures and the governmental structures and political structures, and that Paul had come face to face with that level of demonic power, that it was embedded within the economic system of Ephesus, it was embedded in the religious and political system of Ephesus, and Paul found out that that kind of power, principalities and powers embedded in the systems of society, was a little different than trying to exercise a demonic spirit from an individual. And so a little bit more further context for today's study is that Paul has now left Corinth, and it was a bad experience to some degree in Corinth. Paul had planted that church in Corinth. He was their first pastor. But what he found as he left was that people were preferring Apollos. He was a better speaker. Or they were preferring Peter. Peter had known Jesus personally. He was a disciple of Jesus. And so Paul left feeling like he really wasn't the favored one who had been who, who, by the church, even though he was the one who had started this little church. And he also left a church that was struggling with lots of things. And we've looked at them throughout the series um, lots of issues of morality and how to live together. Because remember, this is a first generation of people. This is a first generation of Messiah followers who've been called out of a pagan culture. And Paul is trying desperately to help them to understand what it means to be the followers of the Messiah. And so Paul heads to Ephesus, perhaps with his head down a bit, perhaps hoping for a new start in Ephesus. And the initial signs in Ephesus are promising. And so I'm not going to read them again. We looked at them in, in Acts 19 several weeks ago. But in, in, early on, it, the signs that this was a new start looked promising. There were amazing miracles and manifestations of the Messiah. And the Messiah's power to heal and the Messiah's power over demonic oppression. And I just want to remind us that this is the dominant theme of Paul's writing. That the power of the cross that Christ crucified and resurrected has overcome the principalities and powers of Satan and his forces for all time. Amen? Amen. That's, the, that's the dominant theme. It flows throughout all of the epistles. Christ crucified. Paul says it over and over again. The power of the cross over and over and over again. As Heidi was praying, that no matter what your darkness has been, what your darkness is, what your darkness will be, there is a light and life shining and flowing through the life of the Messiah that is ours. And Paul keeps wanting to say, and he does keep saying that over and over again, this power of the cross that resurrected Jesus from the dead is our power. It is your power. It's accessible to us. And so Paul goes marching across Asia proclaiming this one central truth, that the Messiah has come as the grand finale. And remember, we've talked about eschatologic, the eschatological uh, uh, story of God from um, Abraham to Moses to David to exile and finally this hope in the Messiah. And so Paul is telling this story over and over again that Jesus came not as a king to conquer the Roman Empire, but he came to conquer powers even greater than Rome. He came to conquer all of the powers. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians, I came to you with one thing and preached one thing, Christ crucified. And then to the Colossians later from prison he will write, for Christ has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And you can almost see Paul shaking his fist at the powers and principalities of, of Satan when he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. 
That's a wonderful passage. That on the cross and resurrected from the cross, Christ makes a public spectacle of every other power and principality in the world, triumphing over them by the cross. This is Paul's battle cry, Christ crucified, Christ the victor. I want to pause just for a little footnote that connects to where we've been going in this series. I think way too often we credit Paul primarily with establishing the early church's morality and its ethics. What is right and what is wrong? What is sin and what is not a sin? What is sin? Paul does that, but it is always secondary to this one central message. Christ crucified. Christ over the powers. Christ victor. Christ on the cross. Everything else from Paul flows out of this Christocentric message. For there is no use in Paul's mind of following the rules if Christ isn't crucified. Let's go have a party, he says. If Christ isn't resurrected, then we got no hope. The hope for Paul is in the resurrected Messiah. But out of that message of a resurrected Messiah flows a particular way of life. It, out of that message flows the Messiah's life. Paul would have no time today for any church that was concerned about doing all of the right things crossing all our T's and dotting our I's, but failed to preach the Christ of power, the cross of power, the Messiah of power in whom we believe. Because Paul's primary message is that it is by the loyalty and faithfulness. Remember I said that word um, faith in the Greek is often Paul uses as, as P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. And it means the loyalty and faithfulness of Christ. Not my loyalty, not my faithfulness, but his loyalty, his faithfulness. That saves me. That saves me from the powers of darkness. I think if we spent half as much time as Christians, as Christians practicing a life with the crucified Christ and proclaiming his power over Satan as we did trying to do all the right things and critiquing one another for failing to believe all of the right things, we would actually end up doing the right things. Let me say that again. If we spent half as much time as Christians practicing a life with Jesus... A daily life with Jesus, with the Christ crucified and resurrected, proclaiming his power over the enemy, as we did trying so hard to do the right things and criticizing one another for failing to do the right things, I think we'd actually end up doing the right things because it would flow from our life with God. Practically, what do I mean? I would rather be part of a church where Christ crucified is consistently preached and Christ's power over hell is, is, is regularly pro pro proclaimed but where there are differences in belief and practice. Then I would a church where everyone believes exactly the same things, but the theology of Christ crucified and Christ the power over darkness is sloppily and inconsistently preached. Because if we preach Christ crucified, we'll figure everything else out. If we preach the power of the resurrected Lord, we'll get everything else together. But if that message is missing from us centrally, then we're going to be all over the place. And I hope that one of the things I leave behind with you is clarity that I have preached that cross, that I preached the resurrected Lord Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and his power over the enemy and the power that is ours as a result. But what Paul learns in Ephesus, as we're going to see today, and I mean learns not in his head, but at the deepest part of who Paul is, is that this victory over Satan for Christ came at the cost of the cross. But Paul will learn it also comes at the cost of the cross for him as a follower of Jesus. Yes, Jesus came and took our son and sin and bore the brunt of our punishment.
But Paul learned that it is only through suffering in partnership with Christ that he experiences the transformation that Heidi prayed about. That that transformation only comes as we embrace the same kind of suffering that Christ himself embraced. We'll come back to that. Back in Ephesus, where the battle cry of the victorious Messiah seems to be working, there are extraordinary miracles, evil spirits are exercised, the sons of Sceva are having trouble casting out demons, and, and Paul, um, they, they try to do it in, Paul's, in Jesus' name and, and, and the, in the name of the Jesus that Paul knew, but they weren't able to do it. And then a group of sorcerers brought their pagan books and burned them in a fire as they turned from the power of Satan to the Messiah. Everything seems to be working according to plan in Ephesus, as we looked at in November 3. And Paul's about ready to leave Ephesus, and he would leave on a victorious note, but he hesitates a moment. He hesitates, and he sends Timothy and Erastus in advance of him, and they go on, and he hangs out in Ephesus a little bit longer. Who knows why he hung out there a little bit longer? But his hanging out in Ephesus a little bit longer will change everything Paul ever writes after this moment. Some will say there is a conversion that Paul has after this moment, a second conversion. N.T. Wright says probably not a second conversion, but certainly something dramatic that shifts the writing of Paul for the rest of his life. Paul suffers more than he has ever suffered before, but Paul is also more deeply transformed than he's ever been transformed before. Paul meets the Messiah in a deeper way than he ever met him on the road to Damascus. That road to Damascus where he was smitten by the love of the Messiah is just the beginning of Paul's transformation and Paul's understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. We don't know why Paul stayed, but we are fortunate that he did. Because the evidence, and it's not entirely explicit in the Scripture, but you can read it between the lines N.T. Wright and other scholars say, is that Paul was imprisoned probably in Ephesus after those riots that broke out that we looked at. That he was ended up in prison perhaps as long as six months. And it is, it is out of that imprisonment that he wrote Philippians, that he writes Ephesians, that he writes Colossians, and that he writes Philemon. And these letters are so powerful because they are written in the darkest place that Paul had ever experienced in a place where Paul came face to face with the powers that he had not ever experienced before in the same kind of way. And while, and we're going to look at these letters in a few moments in some of these scriptures, but while these letters exude with heaviness, despair, darkness, even death, they are also letters that exude with hope. They exude with light. They exude with life. These are the letters out of which Paul has found and discovered in a new way what it means to find the light of Christ and Messiah in the midst of darkness. When we are on an apostolic journey, and we've talked about that, and it just means we have set ourselves for that place where Christ has called us to replant the kingdom of God, to reestablish the culture of the kingdom. Anyone who has set their sails on that journey can expect to confront the powers of darkness. Sometimes it's in people around us, and Paul would say it includes people in the church. Sometimes it's in the principalities and powers of Satan that are in the structures, embedded in the structures and systems of our society. But an apostolic ship like ours as a congregation that's on a mission for God is sure to encounter the stirring of the principalities and powers of Satan. And sometimes from the most unexpected places and situations. 
Because what Paul learned in Ephesus is that the powers of hell, says N.T. Wright, will eventually fight back, and when they do, they do not fight fair. That when Satan targets us, he does not fight fair. Anyone in any community of the Messiah who gets serious about God's mission to the world that God so loved and so loved still is certain to encounter the fight of their lives. We are certain to experience riots, even if those riots primarily come at us from the principalities and powers of the, of the spiritual realms. But I also believe that when we are truly faithful to the gospel mission, we will create a stir from time to time, both in the church and in the world around us. Remember N.T. Wright's comment, why don't we have riots anymore? Every place Paul showed up, there was a riot. N.T. Wright's comment is, perhaps we've trimmed our sails too much. Perhaps we have compromised too much with the world around us. And last week you heard me discussing some of that in light of how we are engaging politically these days as a church and my concerns about that. I used to think that all of the talk in Scripture of persecution and suffering and hardship for Jesus' followers was just for that first and second century church. But somehow because we didn't live in a communist country or a Muslim-dominated country, somehow we weren't intended. We were just the lucky ones. We didn't, we didn't have to suffer. But what I now believe after this fall series is that if you and I really confront the powers of darkness, if we are really faithful to the mission of God as individuals, as couples, as families, we will encounter the same kinds of riots and responses from the pit of hell that Paul himself encountered. We should not take comfort in the fact that riots won't break out this afternoon out in our parking lot. At least I don't think they will, Andy, unless you and I get out there and start doing something. But youth, are you with us? Because the strategy of the enemy hasn't changed. His concern that his territory be protected hasn't changed. If anything, he's even more worried as he senses that his time comes to an end. Over this past year, in a number of different areas of my life, I have had to do battle with forces that were clearly not earthly powers. And in, and in doing that, by the loyalty and faithfulness of Christ, I have been able to take ground that I was not able to take before. That for many years kept me from moving in the freedom of the Messiah that kept me from overcoming, that kept me from doing battle courageously, that intimidated me, that kept me restrained. Some of you have asked what happened to my preaching over the last year. Why is it more, I don't know, whatever you've said. And I can only say this, that I feel set free in a way that I never felt set free before. This is not a coincidence, and it's not unrelated to the battles that I have had to face. Why do I share this with you? Because I, like you, have for too long underestimated the power of the cross. I, like you, for too long have underestimated the power of the cross and failed to understand that when suffering and difficulty come into our lives, it is the pathway to the Messiah's transformation. To help us take back ground that Satan too long has held in our lives, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and ground that we were never motivated to fight for before we suffered and experienced heart hurt and hardship. We, for too long, have been intimidated by the enemy and by his power failing to understand that his power was overcome on the cross. What he has left are threats and fears and lies and intimidation, but that is it. His power has been overcome on the cross, amen? And this was Paul's theme time and time and time again across all of the epistles. Look, folks, the powers have been undone. The powers have been undone, 
Yes, there are threats, and yes, there are fears, and yes, there are beatings, and yes, there are imprisonments, and yes, there are hardships, but he's going to say later, that's nothing compared to the glory. It's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Philippians 3, remember, we've read this before in this series. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, all the powers a loss, all the credentials a loss, all the status a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have gained all things? No, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he explodes. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And remember, he's writing this from prison. He's writing this from the depths of the darkness. And he's holding his head up and he's standing firm. And he says, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, but he doesn't stop there. You would think a guy in prison, suffering from depression and darkness, would stop and say, I just want to know your resurrection power. No, he doesn't stop there. He says, and I want to participate in your sufferings, Lord. Just let me participate with you. This isn't coming from someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. This is coming from someone who has suffered, and this is the darkest period of Paul's life. And then he says, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Writing from prison, most likely in Ephesus, having experienced the darkness and depression of that near-death experience, Paul not only wants to experience the power of the resurrection, but now he yearns for it. Listen to me, he wants to participate in Christ's suffering. Because he's a martyr? No. Because he's a masochist? No. Because he has learned that freedom and joy and hope and life come through sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That we are set free when we embrace the suffering for the sake of Christ. That suffering with Christ and becoming like him in his death is somehow mysteriously linked to our own resurrection, just like it was with Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 1. And guys and girls, there are going to be a lot of scriptures here in the next five minutes, ten minutes. First one is 1 Corinthians. Fortunately, we're going to stay in 1 Corinthians for a bit. Let me give you a context again of these two letters to the Corinthian church. The first one is very different from the second one. The first one is, well, you know, we've talked about it. It's about conflicts. It's got the love chapter. It's got the resurrection chapter and a lot of other things. But the second one occurs after his imprisonment in Ephesus after this time of despair and darkness. And it's a very different letter. And he talks both about his hardship, but also what he learned through that hardship. So listen to what he, how he describes what he experienced in Ephesus. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians. And what's the page number? If you need a pew Bible or a chair Bible, they should be in front of you. 931, thank you. Oman. Uh, where's Amon? Oh, he's downstairs. And Kynum, too. Yeah, thanks. First, 2 Corinthians 1, 8-11. Listen to what Paul experienced. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we experienced in the province of Asia. Listen to this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, that it was all over. 
But this happened so that there was a purpose in his suffering. There's always a purpose in our suffering. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in the answer to the prayers of many. You hear the darkness. And N.T. Wright says he thinks Paul was very depressed at this time in his life. And the language, if we listen to anyone else talk like this, if any of us talked to one another and said, you know, it was beyond my ability to endure, I was under great pressure, I despaired of life, we would say, I felt we had received the sentence of death, we would say, you're depressed. There's darkness here. Paul has experienced it in this prison experience in Ephesus. But what did he learn? What he learned, as he's going to tell us time and time again in the epistles written from prison, is that I learned not to rely on myself, but on the Messiah's power. I learned that I had no power, that it was all about the Messiah's power, who raises the dead, because he himself was raised from the dead. That a God who can deliver us once will deliver us again. That we have hope in his continued deliverance. And I suspect Paul was thinking about Exodus. Again, he's always thinking about the God story. The eschatological story from Abraham to Moses to David to exile to hope. That this God who delivered once will deliver him again. Paul learned that in the midst of this trial by fire, just like the three in the fiery furnace, that the Messiah will always show up. That the Messiah will always show up in the midst of the darkest moments of our lives if we are looking for him, attentive to him, and open to his coming. And this is the good news that emerges from us, for us, from our suffering, regardless of its source. That we learn to rely on the one who raises the dead. That we again experience the deliverance of a delivering God who has made setting his people free his business throughout all of history. That we have a sure hope, Paul says, not maybe it's going to happen, but a hope that he knows will happen that's coming. Where God will show up as he has always showed up to those who called upon him. In other words, the eschatological theme that Paul had been preaching of the Messiah as the deliverer of humanity now becomes Paul's story. Paul now sees himself in God's story, that he himself will be delivered from the suffering and the pain and harm by the Messiah. Paul says again, and the more that I study Paul, um, and the more I understand the suffering, that it's causing him to, over time, lose his grip on life. He's not hopeless at all. He's more and more hopeful, but he's clinging less to life. If you read Philippians, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I don't know what's going to happen. But he is losing his grip on life because he is understanding that what is to come far exceeds what he is currently experiencing because of the power of the Messiah. I want to know Christ, says Paul. And that knowledge deepens for him the more that he shares in the suffering of the Messiah. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12. Gang, what page number? Thank you. 937 in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is not from God and is, is from God and not from us. Again, Power, time and time and time again throughout the epistles. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death, to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Again, Paul in this passage describes how he has his back against the wall at every turn. And yet he understands that that's, he understands that that's part of the deal for Messiah followers. For it is these experiences that enable him, enabled him and enable us to carry around within us the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may continually be revealed. Do you again see the cross and the crucified one? Paul is saying that the hardships he has experienced keep him grounded in the realities of the death of Christ. Our own sufferings remind us of Christ's sufferings and death. But like Christ, these near-death experiences that we encounter also reveal the life of the resurrected Messiah through us. Only God could have taken death, Satan's ultimate weapon. Death was the ultimate weapon that Satan had that he introduced in the Garden of Eden. It was his, it was his tool of destruction. Only God could have taken that tool and made it the pathway to life and life eternal. God took from Satan's hand the very tool of destruction for our destruction, made it the experience of his son, the Messiah, and then defeated death through the Messiah's resurrection. And, and Paul cannot stop talking about that. This is why the scripture can say that no weapon formed against us will ever prosper. Because that weapon has been destroyed. The ultimate weapon of death has been co-opted by God and taken from the satanic powers. And having lost the power of death, the only thing that Satan has left, as I've said, is threats and intimidation and fear and deception and lies. I'd like us to look quickly at several passages, again, in these epistles that were written from prison. So, uh, folks, there are going to be two from Colossians and two from Ephesians. First of all, Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And remember, again, these are the, 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 the epistles written at this difficult time uh, for Paul, probably the most difficult time of his apostolic experience. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you're going to hear these same themes of power, of dominion over darkness, of the cross. Colossians 1, 2, sorry, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And then again, you can almost imagine him shaking his fist at the principalities and powers. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. Page? 946. Thank you, Amon. Ephesians 1. One of the, uh, one of the brothers. Do you want to come up and read this? Yeah. Yeah, I know you do. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. It's one of the ways I get to know my students is if I call on them and ask them to do something. So tell us your name again. 
Jumba. Thank you, Jumba. Jumba, would you read Ephesians 1, 18 to 23? And if I ever forget your name again, I owe you something, all right? Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. Ephesians 1.18, right here, right there. So this is a Paul uh, prayer jamba that Paul has for the Ephesian church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope in which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his, in his holy people, in his incomparable, incomparably. incomparably great power to us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which in his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jumpa, thanks. Now I have a question for you. I know you've been listening down there. Mm -hmm. So what is one thing you've heard as I've been preaching that Paul was concerned about? Um, He was concerned about how, like, the principalities of Satanists is how God has used um, death to give everyone eternal life, and now Satan can only use threats to... Threaten people? Threaten, threaten, yeah. So what does this passage say? Let's open it up again. You're doing a great job, by the way. What does this passage say that I've been talking about? He has given us what? He mentions it a couple of times. Right here. He's given us incomparably great what? Great power for Uh, us who believe. And that same, what? That's, Power is the same as the mighty strength he yeah. exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Far above what? Far above all rule and authority, authority, power, and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the ones to come. Amen. Thank you, Jumba. Welcome. If I ever forget your name again, I know you'll let me know. And I'll... I'll do something good. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. So, Jamba, thank you. That was fantastic. Let's give Jamba a hand. Those themes over and over again. Power over darkness. We are empowered by the same Christ, by the same power that Christ had. The last one I'm going to turn to is Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. And this is one that throughout the series I keep reading because I keep getting stuck on it. This is an incredible prayer that Paul has for the Ephesian church. And it is full, again, of the same themes of of the power that we have through Christ. Ephesians 3, 14. What, 948? Okay, that sounded like a quartet. Thank you. 948. Appreciate it, guys. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his full family and heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power 
that through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his what? Power. That is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What is emerging for Paul from the depths of despair is a new resurrection of what he's, a new understanding of what he's been preaching all along. It's no longer theoretical for Paul if it ever was, but it's deeply personal that the Messiah's power is the real deal, that the Messiah's power has overcome all of the powers. And because of this, we too have access to that power. I don't know what this means for you this morning. I was talking to my brother this weekend. Heidi and I just came from Belleville this morning from a family gathering, and my brother's son wrestles, and he's watched him wrestle for years. And he said, Con, you know, you can always tell at some point who's going to lose the match because at some point they lay their head down on the mat or at some point they just drop their head. And he said, the game is over. The match is over. And so one of my questions for you this morning is, as you think about the power that is ours. And we, after hearing Paul, we can't underestimate it. When we think about the power that is ours for our families, for our marriages, for our individual lives, in those places where we're caught in habits, addictions, whatever it is, where we're caught with a self-esteem that's in the pits, where we've told ourselves way too many lies about ourselves and what is true. What are those areas in your life that are still owned by the enemy? We can be followers of Jesus and still have parts in our lives that we haven't yet given to the Lord, that the power of Christ has not yet taken over. And I'd just like for you to think about those for a moment. Maybe there are places that you have not set boundaries with other people that you need to set because you're being harmed. Maybe, again, there are lies that you've received about yourself. Maybe there are addictions and on and on again. But I'd just like you, for you to think for a moment about where are those places where the enemy clearly still has ground, still has ground. And to pray with me with, me, with you that, that the power of Christ that is yours and that is mine. Remember, Christ dwells in you like he dwelt in the temple. That's Paul's message over and over. It's no longer the temple. It's no longer the Torah. It's in you. This is not abstract stuff, folks. This power resides within you. It resides within me. And I want to say that every serious effort, though, that you make to take that ground back, the enemy will always double down. And it will always get worse before it gets better, or it will always feel like it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's going to be easier some days to say, I give up on my marriage, I give up going to church, I give up on my kids, I give up praying for my adult children that they know Jesus. I give up, I give up, I give up. I'm a loser, I'm not an overcomer, and on and on and on. But Ephesians 6 reminds us that we fight the principalities and powers and that we stand firm. And so I'd just like you to think for a moment, where are those places, and is your head down or up? When it comes to that place in your life where you're really struggling, have you dropped your head or is it still up? And what would it mean for you to look up again? What would it mean for you again to look up at the cross and say, wow, there's a power accessible to me that I just have completely forgotten about. 
I've given up hope. But Christ is within me, and his power is within me. Take just a moment to ask the Lord to reveal those places in your life where his power still needs to be at work to transform and renew. Jesus, we come to you this morning thanking you that you have overcome the powers. Thanking you that you are indeed the victor. Thanking you that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you indeed are the Messiah. But thank you that that power of the cross by which your spirit raised you from the dead is also our power, is accessible to us through your same Holy Spirit. And so I just pray that for each one of us, even this morning, you would just reveal at least one area to us where you want to continue to be at work to give us victory, to give us your power to overcome whatever that area is in our lives. And we thank you that this Advent season that you came as a, as a baby, but you came to overcome and you did overcome the powers. In Jesus' name, amen.